on this episode, we will try and answer the question, what are the best manual therapy techniques? where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 138. For today's episode, I want to try and tackle the question of what are the best manual therapy techniques. And to be honest, before I start this episode and this kind of thought process, I'm not sure how much I have to contribute to this conversation in a meaningful way, to be honest. This isn't a topic that I think about a lot. I know it is a topic that is discussed a lot. But I guess if we're on episode 138 and I haven't talked about it much, it isn't really a topic that's at the forefront of my mind a lot of the time. But because I know it is a topic that is hotly debated amongst the manual therapy community, the the importance or unimportance of technique, I thought I'd lend my thoughts to the topic and try and parse out the things that I think about when it comes to manual therapy techniques. As well as if you're a person that is seeing a therapist, you might find this of value to you. We'll see how much I have to say about this and hopefully you'll find some value along the way. The reality of it is, is that depending upon the field that you're in, or if you're a person of the general public, the practitioners that you see, you might experience people doing different manual therapy techniques on you, or you might hear about words that are used to describe different manual therapy techniques. Some of these are generalized techniques, and some of these have been concisely packaged and marketed as a, you know, a technique or the the gold standard of doing X, you know, technique. And there are a variety of these, probably too many to name now. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. A good place to start this conversation might be around what are the goals of the techniques that we do as manual therapists. The thing about techniques is Generally speaking, they should encompass other things in the treatment plan. Again, we'll maybe round that up a little bit later. But when I think about performing manual therapy techniques, there are a few things that I'm trying to achieve through that. The first is, generally speaking, to achieve a desired result. And a desired result looks very different for one person compared to the next. And then if we talk about, you know, what are some more refined goals. It might be to increase the range of motion of an area or subset of areas within the body, decrease pain. And we know that pain is the most common stressful output of an injury or disease that people associate with. Most people that come to see as they're in pain want that as the primary reduction or the primary symptom to be reduced rather. Now, as a subset of feeling pain, there might 
also be other things going on. They might have a decrease in range of motion, for example, and they might not notice that. Thirdly, it might be a, a decrease in perceptual tone or tightness. So someone's feeling tight or spasmy in an area and they want that to go away. A decrease in other symptoms that people might be feeling. Maybe they're feeling a bit of numbness. Maybe they're feeling an alteration in sensation. Ultimately, we want this to carry over into a person's activities of daily living. So we want to improve their function as a result of maybe doing some manual therapy. But ultimately, manual therapy should serve as an adjunct to a greater treatment plan. One other thing, sorry, before I moved on is, you know, some people feel this sensation of weakness and sometimes, you know, restoring range of motion or helping restore range of motion, reducing pain can get rid of that weakness. So perceivably make somebody stronger. But as I just said, it should serve as an adjunct to a greater treatment plan. And a greater treatment plan is really fostering a shared decision-making relationship. So if you're the therapist, you're using the patient's input. And if you're the patient, you're actively involved in your own care to come up with a, a treatment plan that you know both parties think is of benefit to try and get the best resolution in whatever that person's going through. Now, long argued have been the mechanisms of manual therapy. So if we look back, you know, 25, 30 years in manual therapy, there were many very sort of tissue-specific mechanisms for manual therapy or more mechanical mechanisms for manual therapy. So some simple examples of this might be fascial work. So the breaking down of fascial, what were called restrictions or adhesions, and that we were going in manually with our hands and breaking up, you know, if you want to call it scar tissue or fascial adhesions. Another common one would have been trigger points. So these little, what were considered at the time to be sort of shortenings of muscle fibers, these little things called sarcomeres, and we would go in with our thumbs and and manipulate that tissue and restore that tissue to its normal physiology. And then another one might be something like a friction, again, where we were thought to be going in and breaking up scar tissue or altering the inflammatory cycle in some way. And so these are older models of manual therapy. And as research has progressed in the field of manual therapy, What we've come to understand is that most manual therapy techniques have the same mechanism, and that's some type of alteration in the nervous system physiologically. And this is influenced by several other factors unrelated to the actual manual therapy technique that get best results. So I'll say that again, most of the manual therapy techniques that we do as therapists or that you're seeing, if you're a patient, you're seeing someone for chiropractic massage, physiotherapy, most of these mechanisms aren't necessarily the sort of mechanical mechanisms that we used to think, the breaking down of scar tissue, but more neurophysiological. Now, some of these other factors that influence the context of manual therapy are Things like, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but things like the context of the treatment space, the trust that the person has in the therapist that they see and integrating that shared decision-making process into the care. So 
Do they have a good relationship and rapport with them from a personal level? Do they feel as though the therapist has their best interest in mind? Do they have a say in what goes on? Is the therapist actively listening to the patient and as a result of that, help helping to guide the treatment plan in a in a way that the patient is interested in? What might be the general health profile of the person that we're seeing as a therapist? Things like the natural course of disease or injury. You know, if you look at back pain, for example, most mechanical back pain relieves itself within three-month period, whether there's uh, interventions of manual therapy or not. So where along the continuum of the natural course of the disease or injury are you getting the person? What is the severity of the injury? Is this, again, something like a, a nagging back pain without a specific mechanism? Or has the person broken their leg? What might be some psychological influences or stressors that the individual is going through? Are they going through life change, relationship change, job change? What other physiological stressors are they going through as a result of psychological factors or even social factors, things like um, relationships with friends or access to care? What socioeconomic class do they fall under? Is this causing other stressors? So while we look at the mechanisms of manual therapy being predominantly neurophysiological, there are a lot of other factors that go into getting a positive result. For the simplicity of this episode, I'll just parse out manual therapy for me, the way that I see it, into two categories. We have the the sort of soft tissue category, let's say. And this is often where the person on the table is in sort of a static position and I'm not necessarily moving limbs around or having them move around. And if we look at those soft tissue techniques, we can further parse those out into the preparatory technique. For example, these techniques might be used with lotion if you're a massage therapist or through the clothes if you're a physical therapist, chiropractor, or your massage therapist working in the field. Two techniques that really come to mind in terms of preparation are things like effleurage and petrosage and massage therapy. These are techniques that are used with lotion and one's considered to be perceivably more superficial to the person and the other one's considered to be deeper or perceivably more deep to the person. And I, you know, really like these techniques. When we teach them in school, we talk about, you know, allowing the therapist and the patient or the patient or the person on the table to get accustomed to the therapist's touch, particularly if the person's never been treated by that that therapist. The reason why I like these techniques is, you know, you can take your time with them. You can start to kind of investigate the area that you're treating. You can be actively discussing with the person, you know, is this sore, trying to get some information from the person in terms of the symptoms that they're feeling as you are preparing the area through treatment. Now, there's this other subset of soft tissue techniques that they're considered to be specific in nature. Now, these are some of these older techniques that are still following a mechanical model and still exist within the manual therapy world. As I mentioned earlier, trigger point therapy, fascial work, frictions, the list really goes on. Some of these techniques have been slightly modified and then branded. For example, active release technique might be one that many people are familiar with. 
a lot of these techniques are still following kind of an outdated from a research perspective model of manual therapy where they're talking about these mechanical effects that in large part have been in the research kind of refuted. So as the episode goes on, I don't really have a lot to say much more on these mechanical models other than that I would like to see some change in how that's delivered in our curriculum at the entry level of education as well as in some of the other continuing education spaces. But if I move forward and talk about, okay, we've got these soft tissue techniques where the body's in a relatively static position. And then maybe, and again, this is a very simplistic way that I see this. So I understand that, you know, this might not be the most accurate depiction, but then I look at, okay, well, then there's this subset where there's soft tissue and joint. And I, I know that ultimately we're still engaging and touching the person's skin and soft tissue. So it's really hard to, to isolate out soft tissue from joint. But this might be moving articulating surfaces. So this might be moving a limb around, for example, moving the shoulder up and down or moving the shoulder in external rotation or trying to create some gliding motions through joints along with soft tissue. And these are really the two broad categories of manual therapy techniques I see when I think about manual therapy techniques. You either have the person on the table and you're doing kind of manual therapy, the limbs are in a static position, you're not really moving or trying to move articulating surfaces or you're doing some manual therapy and you're having the person go through movement or you're trying to move articulating joint surfaces at the same time. One thing we do know about, you know, the specificity of trying to target joints is it isn't once what we thought it used to be, particularly when it comes to the spine. So for example, if we're working on the low back and I'm doing some mobilization work on the low back. Chances are I'm not only moving the soft tissue, but I'm moving multiple joints in the spine. I'm not really able to isolate, let's say, L1 and L2 like we once thought we were able to. The other thing about moving joints is directional movement as we were once taught based on mechanical models probably don't play as much importance as we thought they uh, once did. This is probably good news because when we're doing joint mobilizations and we're really trying to get specific, specificity probably ultimately doesn't matter as much. And so it, it makes it a little bit simpler to teach as well as for new therapists. It gives them a little bit more confidence. They don't worry as much about doing the quote unquote wrong thing. Ultimately, what we're trying to do when we perform manual therapy on somebody, as I said earlier, is we want to try and achieve outcomes. One thing about manual therapy, because it is so person-centered, it's often difficult to understand whether what you're doing is eliciting a positive response or not. You know, you might communicate with the person on the table and they, they might say, this feels really good, but then upon leaving your office, they send you an email two hours later saying they're in immense pain and their symptoms are substantially worse than when they came in, which is not a great place to be as a therapist because ultimately that's not what we're trying to do. 
So what I try to do the best I can is I try to come up with a framework for what are some things that I know physiologically that might guide me in a direction that what I'm doing on the table has a better chance of yielding a positive response. And again, these are just things that I've kind of come up with in reading research over the years. So I'd, I don't think these are, you know, steadfast rules, but so let's go over the, the list of positive things that can happen on the table is first we can get a decrease in symptoms. So the person says, oh, that's, you know, that's already feeling better. We can get a decrease in perceptual tone. So perceptual tone is the person might feel tight or stiff. And they might feel as though they have a reduced range of motion. So the person can start to say, oh, that feels looser. Now this may be in conjunction with me feeling sort of some softness or softening in the area. Now that's not always the case, but I think that sometimes I feel that. It might also be accompanied by, let's say somebody is, has really bad shoulder pain and they get on the table and they're really guarding the arm, they're holding it close to them. As I start to work through that tissue, the arm and the shoulder might become more relaxed and less guarded and it might assume a different position that's perceivably more relaxed on the table. So that's another big potential for positive response is relaxation and relaxation can look different to different people. Um, one thing that I like to observe is breathing patterns. So does the person seem relaxed in their breathing or are they holding their breath or wincing as I treat? And I like to do this through conversation. So if I'm on an area that I think might be sensitive to the person, I'll say, you know, is that too much? And if they kind of give me that classic no answer, but you know that they're holding their breath, so they're almost saying no with a wincing, um, then that tells me that it probably is too much, even though the person is telling me otherwise. And then in terms of things, lastly, that I can look for, I can look for kind of positive changes in the skin superficially. So is the skin looking kind of red and flushed and as though it's got good, healthy, superficial blood supply to the area. So those were, would be some things that I would look for from a positive standpoint. Now, what are things that I would look for from an, you know, an undesirable standpoint? Um, am I increasing pain? Is the person contracting against me? So is their tissue contracting or are they going into kind of a, what's called a jump sign? So are they moving away from the manual therapy that I'm doing or are they holding or guarding an area as I work on it? Is this paired with maybe them holding their breath? Uh, and then some other local tissue changes, like are they sweating profusely or is there goosebumps in the area? Is there a kind of a lack of flushing of the skin or coloring of the skin? So is the skin kind of white or gray or light blue in nature? These might be things that send me down the line of, okay, something, I probably need to change something in what I'm doing right now. Now, as I said earlier, pain is one of the, if not the primary reason that people see us for. They are in some degree of pain or discomfort. And this is having deleterious effects elsewhere in their life. Maybe they're an athlete and they can't perform. Maybe they can't go to work. Maybe it's causing them to withdraw from activities that they enjoy, say gardening during the weekend. I am of the mindset that generally speaking, I want to do as little harm to the people on my table as possible, both physically and from a psychosocial standpoint. 
Uh, but pain is a really interesting thing because there are certain circumstances where things are going to be painful for the people that are on our table, regardless of my attempt to minimize it. So some things that come to mind are like post-surgical, acute post-surgical cases. So someone's just had a total knee replacement two days ago. They're on your table. They're going to be in pain um, with almost everything that you do. Chronic pain cases, cases of chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, uh, complex regional pain syndrome. These individuals are in quite a bit of pain, maybe at rest. They're always in pain. They never go to a zero. This is an interesting concept because there is really, in some of these circumstances, you are going to be creating pain by what you're doing, even though that's not your intent. I don't really have a great answer how to navigate this. I think that what I try to do is get a a baseline level of where they are at going into the treatment, just subjectively, so rate your pain on a scale 1 to 10, and then try to not really elevate it two points or more above where they're currently at. Um, And it's certainly not my intent to elevate it two points or more above, but if it starts to elevate two points or more above, then that's what I use as kind of a subjective guide. The other interesting concept around pain is the thought by individuals that there has to be pain to create change, the kind of classic no pain, no gain mentality. There is some research around kind of manual therapy being perceivably aggressive, leading to more inflammation and more longevity in how, how long people feel symptoms over time. So it seems to be pretty clear in the research that we shouldn't be actively going out and trying to create painful circumstances for people However, there are those people that, you know, want, whether it be deep tissue massage or they want you to push harder on an area or they want you to manipulate the body in a way that they feel as though something is, you know, really, really being done. I think that in some of those circumstances, I will bring the intensity of the manual therapy up slightly. However, I'm, you know, I'm never intentionally trying to, for example, massage tissue so aggressively that I'm creating bruising or swelling. Again, I'm still generally following those physiological responses that I mentioned earlier as a guide. And that doesn't necessarily mean that things can't get perceivably more intense for the person on the table. However, it's done usually over kind of a longer period of time to try and maintain some type of balance in the treatment and not shift people into a more painful state. So those are kind of some guides that I use when I'm doing manual therapy to try to understand where I am in terms of the treatment that I'm performing. Next, I'll maybe talk about some of the techniques that I find to be my favorite techniques. These are techniques that I enjoy doing and that I'm good at. And when people ask me, you know, what techniques I should do or, you know, what techniques should I do on this person, that is my answer. What do you like doing and what are you good at doing? What do I mean by what are you good at doing? I don't mean that, let's say, performing a joint mobilization is better than performing affleurage. When I mean good, I mean... What are you confident in doing with your hand placement, 
Can you manipulate the tissue or a limb in an assertive manner? Can you navigate around the table and continue conversation with the person on the table well? Do you feel confident in doing it? Do you present yourself as confident in doing it? And that's what I mean by good. I don't necessarily mean that there's one technique that's better than the other. The techniques that I'm about to talk about are techniques that I think I'm good at from a hand placement standpoint, from a integrating it into my treatment plan standpoint, from a rhythm standpoint, from a confidence standpoint. And more importantly, these are techniques that I really like doing. I just enjoy doing the techniques on people and the way that that integrates well into the rest of my treatment plan. So first are effleurage and petrissage. I think that these are very undervalued techniques. I think that they are great preparatory techniques. I think that they are great for evaluating areas of the body for, you know, what's painful on a person, going back to getting a person on the table accustomed to a therapist touch, I think is important. And generally speaking, this feels good to people. And I think that especially if the person is new in your office, I think that these are really, really great treatment techniques. I think that often they are maybe underutilized and don't get the kudos that other techniques get. Another technique that I use a lot, maybe not a lot, but I use it in specific circumstances, mostly when there's superficial scars from surgery or the person's coming in because they have an old sensitive scar is skin rolling. And I just pick up the skin, manipulate it in different directions. You know, there's some subjective research in burn research on, you know, manipulating burn scars. There's also some subjective research in post-surgical scars, looking at subjective reporting of the pain in a scar versus um, how sightly or unsightly it is to the person and how that makes them feel. And again, this research is really hard to quantify because it's not like you can take a scar on a person, not manipulate it, and see whether it becomes painful or has a harder time healing and then do the same thing over again. And I have talked about superficial scars on another episode. Maybe I'll link that in the show notes below. But I really like that technique for, you know, getting scar, scars, superficial scars kind of moving early in the recovery process. And then for scars that are painful, I like to use skin rolling to try and calm them down. The second set of techniques, or sort of the third set of techniques, is what I will call long sustain holds with gentle pressure. Some people might call this a positional release technique. Um, I like to use these in circumstances where people feel really sore or they're really symptomatic. And the position that I put them in provides them a lot of relief and feels good. And I want to hold this position for as long as possible to make that person be feeling good as long as possible. So an example, a quick, simple example that I'll give you is someone's coming in with upper neck pain. And what I might do is I will poke around in the upper neck to find a spot that is tender. And I might gently push on that to get them to a point where they feel as though it it feels good. And then I might side bend them to the same side. I might bring the ear towards that shoulder. And I'll check in with the person. If that's a position that's working for them and it's eliminating their symptoms, I want to hold that position for a really long time. 
really long is, again, subjective. I might do 10 minutes in one appointment. I might do 15, 20 minutes in another appointment. I think a lot of this is guided by what's going on on the table with the person, what their feedback is, maybe how painful it is for them coming in and how much it's creating negative effects in other aspects of their life. Another long sustained hold might be something like a a cervical traction. So sort of gently pulling on the neck, pulling the head away from the feet, if you want to use that analogy very gently. Um, I really like doing techniques like that for things like neck pain, headaches, post-concussion symptoms, that type of thing, to try and again calm down the person, get them feeling good. The last set of techniques, I'll call them joint mobilizations, just for clarity and simplicity, along with dynamic movements of the limbs. Dynamic movements of the limbs, meaning I'm moving the leg around, I'm moving the arm around. Sometimes I'm doing joint mobilizations without the movement. Sometimes I'm doing joint mobilizations with the movement. I call them joint mobilizations just because, again, it's easy for therapists to understand what I'm trying to depict visually. Why do I use these? For me, it seems to work well in bringing down, again, those symptoms of perceptual tone, helps with getting some range of motion back, particularly in you know people that are acute post-surgically. And the number one reason why I do them is I really, really enjoy doing them. They're my favorite technique to do. I would do joint mobilizations on every person all day if they they let me. When I'm doing them, I'm not really too worried about the direction I'm moving. I typically oscillate really low oscillations, comfortable, and I do them for a long time, typically a little bit longer than you know textbooks would suggest. Again, sometimes I'm mobilizing a shoulder for five minutes um, repeatedly, and then I might pair that with some passive range of motion of that limb, moving the limb through, let's say, external rotation if they're having a tough time with that, or shoulder flexion, and just kind of using the person on the table as a guide for what I might do to try and, again, achieve a desirable result. One thing to consider and a question that I get a lot from people on the table is, is people will ask me, can you feel a difference? Like, does it feel better or did you feel that or did you feel, you know, that release or does it feel better from two weeks ago or can you tell? My honest answer to people most of the time is not really. I can't really tell. But that doesn't mean that there isn't progress and that doesn't mean that, you know, we're moving in the right direction. If the person has a hard time recognizing the progress, I might massage, for lack of a better word, some things that they have gotten better at. So, you know, your pain's come down over the last week. You're able to, you know, you're back to running. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing progress. And try to kind of shy away from the the need for me to have things feel better because I don't really know. I mean, sometimes I think it does feel better to me, but again, that's just, just me sort of thinking that. There are some other things that I think have been really helpful for me in in learning and reading over the years that I think has helped my techniques in the context of a treatment plan. There are many collaborative questions that you can ask somebody to help guide you in a treatment space when doing techniques. I think first and foremost is really establishing what the goals are of the person before you get them on the table. Everybody's goals are different. Again, some of these might be pain reduction. And then because pain is so common, there's going to be a bunch of offshooting goals. And sometimes it takes, you know, some questioning and a a while to try and parse those out with people. 
when I'm on the table doing techniques, I try not to use kind of leading questions. So I don't try to say when I'm on an area, I don't use the words, oh, that feels bad to me. Is that sore? Mainly because if I'm leading with that question, it probably does have a tendency to be more sore for the person. When I get on an area that I'm treating, I might say something like, how does that feel? It's more of an open-ended question and they can say, oh, I don't feel much there or yeah, that's the spot. From there, if they say that area is sore, I want to try and get an understanding of, is that a familiar feeling to you? Like, is that some of the symptoms that you're feeling or is that kind of a sore spot, but it's, it's not really bringing about what you're feeling? And then depending upon the response, I might say, well, do you want me to continue on this area? If they want me to keep searching for the spot that is eliciting their symptoms, then I'm happy to do that. But if they're also happy with you know, me continuing on this area because they think it's, it feels good and it's going to be a benefit for them, then uh, I'm happy to do that. The other really important thing that I like to ask people is, is the position that you're in comfortable I think sometimes we ask this as a general question as in, are you comfortable on the table, which I think is still important, but you know, sometimes I'll say, is this position comfortable or do you prefer this? So going back to the example about the neck and shoulder, I might side bend the head to the same side. And if I'm observing them and they're wincing or holding their breath or guarding, I might say, well, do you prefer this position? And I might add a bit of rotation or I might side bend them away. I think that is really, really useful. I can't take credit for this. I think Walt Fritz has done a really great job in some of his courses and some of his material and communicating some of these. And I took some of the language that he used and integrated it into my treatment plans when I saw him delivering it. So I definitely want to give credit where credit is due. One of the other things that I might ask is like, are the symptoms starting to calm down now? And then lastly, okay, I'm going to move on to somewhere else. Is that okay? The positional thing as well as, is what you're feeling familiar? Is this a familiar symptom or is this just a, we'll just call it an inconsequential sore spot? You know, those are two really great questions. And then manipulating position on the table to see whether there's one position that feels better than the other. I've seen some really, really neat results as, as a part of integrating that in to uh, my treatment. The other thing that I should probably mention is this idea of, of techniques courses because it is a forever popular topic in the field of manual therapy. The reality of it is is that there are still a lot of technique heavy courses. So that might be pick your technique. It might be like a fascial technique course or a cranial sacral technique course or a joint mobilization technique course. And I guess where I stand on these type of courses are, I do think there's merit in coming together with a group of people and learning techniques, particularly if you're a new therapist or you just have an interest in learning something new. You've been in the field for a while and you want to learn. Maybe you took joint mobilizations as a a therapist in school, you haven't done it in 10, 20 years, you forget it and you'd like to learn. I think there's definitely merit in coming together to learn a technique. When I've taught over the years, and I've said this in other shows, is people will say, oh, that's all you do? You know, when I'm teaching a joint mobilization technique, for example, or, oh, that's your hand placement, 
Like that's what I do. And for the newer therapists, like I think there's a lot of value there because it builds up their confidence. It's like, oh, I was doing the quote unquote right thing, even though there isn't really a right thing, the right thing all along. So I definitely think there's merit in the ability to come together and learn techniques, help people navigate through a treatment session, build, you know, whether you want to call it routines or how to maybe layer treatment together, share hand placement, body placement. There's merit in that. And the other thing that I've observed over the years in teaching is manual therapists and the majority of my teachings in massage therapy. So I'll speak to that, really enjoy that. You know, whenever I get to the kind of manual part of my courses, if I'm in a school teaching kind of techniques classes, that's what everybody loves to do. So I think that, you know, techniques will never go away and there's, there is merit to it. I think where maybe the majority of the pushback against techniques comes from would be the idea that there is a magical technique. So take this course because you need this technique in your repertoire and this is the reason that you are not performing as well as a therapist. And we know that this just isn't true anymore. We know that standalone techniques, for the most part, all do the same thing. A good course might have some techniques within it, but Everything else will be involved in that course. Ultimately, techniques are a small piece of the framework of managing people in a manual therapy setting or a therapeutic setting. And courses that deliver other things about how to manage a shared relationship, things like how to navigate through a treatment space, how to perform a health history how to rule out red flags, how to perform an assessment, really emphasize soft skills like active listening, motivational interviewing. You know, when courses implement techniques along with all of those other things, they can be really, really powerful for new therapists and really powerful for seasoned therapists that want, you know, a different look or they want to reframe things a little bit or they just want to go out and learn for a weekend. You know, sometimes... I just want to go and learn. I want to be a student again. Sometimes I don't want to teach and I just have an interest in going to take a course just because I want to be a student again. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So that's kind of where I stand on, you know, the the gold standard or this is the magic bullet of techniques. We just understand that most techniques generally are doing the same thing. And for us therapists, that's really good because we can, again, Uh, lean on the ones that we enjoy doing and the ones that we feel as though we're good at doing. I also think in, in kind of closing that it is important to state, and I've said this on other podcast episodes on intention, and maybe I'll link that show below as well, is no matter how well intentioned we are as therapists, there are going to be people that we quote unquote hurt on the table or they get hurt from treatment. Um, We make their symptoms worse or we find zero resolution for that person. No matter how good of quote-unquote a therapist you are, the framework that you use to integrate your treatment flow and you're well-researched and you try your best and you're an active listener and you've done all the, you know, this continuing education on, you know, trying to incorporate evidence-based practice, shared decision-making into your treatment space, there are people that aren't going to get better. And 
that is okay. As a therapist, that is okay. That people will not get better underneath your watch. The context of injury and disease and pain and all of these things is very multifactorial. If you're a new therapist, I want to encourage you to try as hard as it may be to not take it personally and focus on the fact that there are plenty of people that you will help in your career. And if something isn't necessarily going the way that you want it to or the person on your table wants it to over the course of a few treatments, it would be doing the person on the table the best favor to say, look, this hasn't really gone the way that I planned. Maybe let me refer you to one of my colleagues. And it may not even be that that colleague is more experienced than you. It may not be that they have more years in dealing with these type of cases than you do. Sometimes it's just the person needs a different look or the natural course of healing will occur under sort of therapist number two's watch versus therapist one's watch. The one thing that that will allow you to do is still maintain the trust of that person rather than continuing to treat the person over and over and over. Let's say years gone by, they're no better. I think that generally speaking, what I've learned is people appreciate and are a lot more trusting if you say, look, this doesn't really seem to be going the way that uh, I've seen in the past. So let's just get somebody else to have a different look at this. This might be a therapist you work with, someone in your community, family doctor, a specialist, what have you. That would be my piece of advice in kind of closing is our intentions, while they can be as positive as we want them to be, uh, don't always turn out that way. Be okay with that and try not to, to take it personally. So I think we'll, we'll wrap up today's episode there. Um, as always, folks, I hope that you found today's episode to be of value to you. My question for you is what techniques do you like to uh, perform as a manual therapist? Or if you're a person listening, what are some of the techniques that you um, prefer getting done on you? I'd love to know in the comments below. Um, as always, hope that you've enjoyed the show and we'll see you in the next one.